Hello and welcome to Stream It, the podcast where we explore movies, old favorites, new favorites, and every so often movies we love just a little bit less. This is our second episode and today we are going to be talking about Disney's classic from 1937, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Uh, As always, I am Zach, I am one of your co-hosts, and I am joined by my good buddy Matthew Watkins. Hey Matt, how's it going? Doing good, how about you Zach? Good, good. Excited to get into this one. We have um, two uh, groundbreaking movies back-to-back here. The first full computer animated movie last week, and then the first full animated film this week. Exactly. It's When we had decided that we were going to cover uh, Disney+, Plus. this was the first movie that we put on our short list. Um, the, we felt like we it, we just had to cover it, so... Um, I'm excited to be able to talk about it. Yeah, so let's get into the frame of mind of 1937 a little bit. This, So a, a couple things to note when I was looking at the history for this movie and the history and sort of where it lands for everything. So we are about five years removed from the and so-called end of the great depression four or five years from the new deal and we are only about 10 years removed from the first talking picture the jazz singer in 1927 as it was called the first talkie so the history of movies with sound that was synced up to them is not very long and it's not very big um when we were sort of talking about whether we had seen any movies older than this one, the list of familiar films before this movie is not very long. There's some Shirley Temple movies that I think you maybe you had seen one of. Yes. Uh, Fred Astaire had uh, some movie musicals that preceded this one. I think their first one was Top Hat in 1934. And then Alfred Hitchcock had uh, The 39 Steps was a classic in 1935. But other than that, it's really that when you think about classic movies, and I was Googling them, they're all after this. Wizard of Oz, 1939. Gone with the Wind, I think 1941, if I'm remembering correctly. So it's really... It's really remarkable how how early we are. So anyway, so 1937, at this time, the Of Mice and Men was just published, John Steinbeck's uh, classic novel. We have Dr. Seuss's first published book, something that kind of always astounds me when I think about it, because it feels like Dr. Seuss is something that should have always existed. The... Um, First issue of Detective Comics, the comic line that gave us Batman, was published. And at the tail end of the year, we had the first Toscanini broadcast. Wow, that's so much, you know, fascinating stuff uh, during that year. It's just, and it's it's really interesting the way that it sets the scene for uh, what was going on. You mentioned how there were so few films before this and the depression was a big part of that how well there were a lot just, of films it's just not films we've heard of 
right films and, that are watched in high volume now right and the big part of that is because of the because of uh, the depression people just weren't going to the movies and you look back at the history of it and movie studios literally paid people to go to the movies for something like six months they would they would just pay you to go to the movie theater to watch their movies because they were that desperate uh, for people to go out and talk about them to, to get enough word of mouth so that more people would come later and things like that. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild. The The music of the time, this was... So Frank Sinatra hadn't released any music yet, which I thought he had, so I was surprised not to find that. But our top singles from this year were by Tommy Dorsey, Fred Astaire, Bing Crosby, and Fats Waller. And the soundtrack for this movie was because this precedes LPs, or at least precedes LPs, record players being available in most households. So in order to release the soundtrack for this movie, they had to do it on a collection of three uh, 78 RPM singles, which (laughs) before I found that out, if you had asked me whether they released a soundtrack for this movie i would have just said no they probably didn't but they did and i I think they didn't actually do it until 1938 and then all of the songs from it immediately charted which is pretty amazing yeah that is amazing yeah um and then the the we'll get into personal history here quickly in a minute but the only other thing that i quickly wanted to mention it's going to come up as we get further into the movie but this is a movie musical. This has songs, and the songs are sung by the characters. They are not sung over the characters, and they generally come out of the characters' feelings, um, which was an innovation the same year as The Jazz Singer in 1927. This was an innovation in musical theater that happened with Showboat in 1927. So really the idea of character-driven songs in musicals was probably only a decade old, but even more impressive than that is we are still six years before Oklahoma would come along and revolutionize the Broadway musical or the way we conceive of a modern book musical. But it's kind of wild how many of those elements are already present in Snow White, which we'll get into a little bit once we start talking about the movie proper. Um, what's, uh, what's, or do you want to say anything else about 1937, Matt? I don't have anything else about the time period. We can go into, you know, what our personal history with them is. Um, yeah. Yeah, so one of the things uh, the that I really remember. This movie was re-released in theaters in... I should have looked this up beforehand. Um, But it was in the early 90s. I think it was in 92. Um, And let's see. In 1994, this was uh, re-released... Re-released in theaters uh, in the United States. um, And released on film and all of these things. Um, And I remember that... uh, I had seen it maybe one time before that, but I cannot remember it at all. But my mom wanted us to have the experience of seeing Snow White and the Seven Dwarves in the theater. So 
on this movie re-release, we went to the theater and watched this movie uh, so I can remember the experience of watching this movie in the theater, which is kind of wild. Uh, and I think I was like, uh, I was like eight or nine years old when this happened. Yeah, I'm sure we must have done the same thing, but I was younger than you, so I don't have memory of when it entered my life. Um, very similar to Toy Story, this is a movie that was very present in our home. When I was re-watching it now, I felt like every moment of underscoring, at least for the first half of the movie, I just sort of intrinsically knew. It, so it, it must have been a movie that we watched over and over and over again, but then it was not one that I re-watched until college, and then I probably haven't watched it since... Uh, since the mid-aughts when I did that. Uh, It is the uh, Snow White's line in the cleaning sequence when she says, no, 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 not under the rug. This was (laughs) a uh, very frequently quoted line by my father in our household. I uh, I don't know if we were apt to be sweeping dust under the rug or not, but... uh, (laughs) It, it made me think of him when I was rewatching it. So. I love it. That's great. Yeah, it's a. I've only seen. I think I've only seen this film three or four times total. Um, that's including the last time that uh, we watched it for this podcast. So it's it's not one that I know at all. But I do remember in the public consciousness. Um, I remember getting like Snow White bobbleheads or something from McDonald's, like in the Happy Meals. Um, when they did the re-release, so I don't know. It's it's weird. I can't remember ever a time where I didn't know the story of Snow White and what was on with it, but I know that I haven't seen it very many times. Interesting. And how, only somewhat tangentially related to this, how well do you know the attraction at Disneyland? Uh, not very well. Not very well mm. at all. Um, so this is just. You know, my issue is, uh, I have two issues. I haven't been to Disneyland very many times. But also, I have vertigo, um, which means that whenever I go on a ride in a theme park, it makes me throw up. So I mm. never go on rides anytime that I go to Disneyland or any park. Um, so it is a massive hole in my understanding of the universe is roller coasters and things. The, the only reason I ask is because there were so many moments in the movie that felt when I watched them, it was like, oh, this is iconic. But then I couldn't remember, I couldn't really figure out if I thought they were iconic because of the movie or if I just remembered those things being present and highlighted in the attraction at Disneyland. The biggest one is those vultures in the second act. Those guys jump out and they're like watching you while you're, while you're riding through. That's so incredibly they, creepy. It, it it is pretty creepy. Uh, I love it. That's awesome. Yeah. So anyway, so let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the relevant personnel here and what was going on at Disney before this. This was obviously, as I mentioned, Disney Studios' first animated feature. It was something that was really considered unheard of at the time. Uh, the people thought Walt was crazy for doing it. He ended up 
having to take out a second more or no i think just mortgage his house in order to pay for the production of the movie so prior to this they disney studios had been doing what the silly symphony cartoons Mm -hmm. which the cartoons were not tvs weren't in every household yet so the way cartoons were viewed before this was they were shown before movies and that was what disney studios did and then shortly after uh disney started doing it looney tunes started doing it i believe in i believe disney started in 1929 and then looney tunes started in 1930 so there there were these competing cartoons and one of the things that this was my first time watching this movie since i had become familiar with the silly symphony shorts and the the thing that is really impressive to me about those and is really impressive to me about this movie is how unbelievably musical they are and so you really see the imprint of the fact that they had worked on these shorts where the focus really was the music and the choreography and marrying everything together and that's very much a, a Walt Disney, you know, imprint on the on the films. He really believed in like the idea of using uh, using music kind of as a universal way to um, to communicate with people um, over the top of the over the top of the cartoons um, that it would be able to communicate to people of all ages those kinds of things. Um, and so the, we really have. Uh, Walt Disney in a big way to thank for for that concept. Yep. So Disney, Walt, Walt Disney, not Disney, the corporation, <laughs> he, he had tried to direct some longer projects before this and really was, by his own admission, and it seems like some friends' admissions, he was not very successful, and those projects ended up becoming, in their eyes, dull and boring. So he made what seemed like a pretty impressive decision to me, especially based on the man that I understand him to be, to take an advisory role for the animation, for the full-length feature film. So he's... yes. An advisor and I believe executive producer although they might not have had those terms back then and then our director was David Hand supervising director and then the only other people I think you had a couple that you wanted to talk about Matt but the it was a little hard to disentangle exactly what went on here for the score but I believe what happened was the songs are written by Frank Churchill and Lee Harline. And then the rest of the music, the orchestral underscoring, was written by Paul J. Smith. So all of them, the three of them, continue to work at Disney and would do so for the next 20 or 30 years and had worked there previously for the Silly Symphonies as well. It's a... Uh, it's really hard whenever you're looking at uh, the people that were involved in making these older films. The credits are not as thorough 
um, as they are now, and you, you know they're using titles that we do, that we aren't familiar with. Um, the people that I wanted to point out, so um, I went through and watched some information behind the scenes on this one, and the two names that that, that were pulled out for this are Albert Herder and Gustav Tangren. So what was interesting for uh, Walt Disney is he was trying to get this movie off the ground. Um, so many people didn't really want to invest in full-length animated features. So everyone that was involved in making animation in the United States at the time period, and to, to be frank, like even in Europe and abroad, um, all really believed that there was a possibility to, to do full-length animated features and that that was the future of success for animation financially. And so, essentially, everybody comes to work on this film, essentially for peanuts. They're working for uh, just well under their normal rate when they come in and work on this film, Snow White. Um, and it's all the the best names in animation at the time period basically all come to work on this film. Um, and the Albert Herder and Gustav Tengren are two two guys that come over from Europe, and they have uh, their background is in illustrating um, fairy tales, collections of fairy tales, uh, specifically German fairy tales. And they have this, the, the style really shows uh, in the film um, throughout Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. With, it has, uh, the scenery is so realistic is even kind of the word that, it, the, it, like they look like paintings rather than just like drawings i don't know if that makes sense no it does make sense especially um like when the when it opens on that first shot of the castle there i had a moment where i was looking at it and i was like this doesn't look dated at all this just looks stylized to me this looks Mm -hmm. like how it looks is intentional and it's how they would make it today yeah, exactly. It's a it's there's a few things in the animation technology that stand out as you're watching it, but overall the just the paintings it, they're you could take the animation directly out of this movie and drop it now and people would just say, "Oh, you know, look, they did an uh, they decided to use traditional animation." I don't think that um the animation style itself and the decisions they made would stand out too dramatically. No, the to me, and I'm curious what you think about this, the stuff that looked dated to me or the stuff that felt a little more herky-jerky was the humans. So yes. when we were seeing Snow White on, uh, I almost said on stage, on the screen, um, that was like, oh, <laughs> we're, we're a long time ago. But as soon as the animals show up, and mm-hmm. their animation of them is so good, and it is it is clear that they love drawing animals and they know how to make them cute and they know how to make you fall in love with those little rabbits. Uh, yeah, they really do. And one of the things that... that so it actually uh, was interesting to do this after Toy Story that we just watched last week because Toy Story had this thing where it tried to go for be- believability over realism. Um, mm-hmm. But when you look at the history of these original uh, these original Disney movies... They were really pushing the realism on the way that things were drawn. They were pushing the the animals to look 
um, you know, as close as they could to reality, and they wanted these trees and forests to look as realistic as they could uh, with drawing them, to the point where uh, when the movie Bambi comes out, they had pushed so much for realism uh, that it ended up uh, being a huge financial disaster because it costs so much money to produce uh, the the animation as realistic as Bambi ended up being. Um, so it was a huge financial disaster for the company. Nearly destroyed the, the Walt Disney Company uh, from making Bambi because they wanted it to look so realistic. Wild. <laughs> it's the amount of times that when you're looking... I mean, I don't... It doesn't seem like any of it is exaggerated, but the amount of times that it's like, ah, the company almost got bankrupted here. And then a <laughs> yeah, decade it's, later, it's the company almost got bankrupted. And then they uh, built a theme it is park and the company almost got bankrupted. <laughs> it's it's and, so close. So many lucky breaks uh, over and over again. And it's just thinking about how different our now would look if uh, any of those bankruptcies had happened. If, <laughs> Yeah, it's true. Any of those failures had had gone through. It's true. Um, and then, did you want to talk about the the actress? Yeah, I just wanted Snow to mention uh, Adriana Casalotti that played uh, played the part of Snow White. Um, she did this film, and she has basically no other big major films. Um, she did this film for seven hundred dollars. Um, seven thousand dollars. Seven hundred. Seven with two zeros after it, seven hundred dollars. <laughs> um, which just I read that and it just blew me away. There was no residuals, no um, no royalties. Just she got a she got seven hundred dollars. Uh, I don't know if she got it in a check or if she got it in cash, and that was her entire payout. Um, and then afterwards, she tried to turn the experience of being Snow White, which was the biggest box office success ever at the time that it came out. And she tried to then turn that into other roles that she could get. But because, you know, people hadn't seen her face in Snow White, people didn't really know her even then. Oh, she no. couldn't turn it into anything else afterwards. It was just horrible. It really is. And, you know, a part of it is, um, I think... You know we can't we can't really talk about Disney without uh, recognizing that there is some amount of uh, exploitation of the people that are working on these things, and I think that Adriana Casalotti is a really good example of this. That um, you know so much of their financial success was dependent on work that she did, and then you know it's not uh, that's not reciproc reciprocated uh, to her until 1994. When she officially gets recognized as a Disney legend, um, and then starts like they bring her in for conventions and things like that. That's a long time to live, uh, having to make ends meet when you're part of what many people call the greatest animated film of all time. That is, that is a rough road to hoe. For it sure. is. It is. It really is. So. Um, all right. Yeah, so that's all I've got about the the folks making the movie. All right, let's get into uh, get into the meat of the film here. So the the first scene that I wanted to talk about is this when the crossing the threshold scene. This scene where so Snow White she is approached by the Huntsman, or it's the Huntsman in the original story. I don't 
know what his name is in, in the it's film. It's just the Huntsman in the film. It is the Huntsman. Okay. Yes, it so is. she's approached by the Huntsman, and he's raising his dagger, and he's about to kill her, and as he's been ordered to by the Queen, and he is unable to, and in what is really a <laughs> really great, like, musical theater piece of writing, the he tells her that she has to leave and he does a little call and response with the orchestra it is i i assume they must have written those orchestra hits after it was animated and after it was recorded but it just reads like it is an integrated musical it is really really astounding um and so he tells her you have to get out of here the queen's jealous she's gonna if, if if you don't get out of here and go where she can't find you, she's going to kill you. And then there is this really impressive, breathtaking, and really pretty scary scene where Snow White runs through the forest and the trees come alive and the, um, the logs turn into alligators. And the whole thing has this really intense string section and underscoring that really just makes it feel like a fully choreographed dance and the so i love the way the music works with this and i also love the um that it really makes you wonder how much of what you're seeing is fears that snow white is having that is blown up that's being exaggerated by the animation and how much of it is a magic land where these bad things really happen and the movie never really tells you and i think that's just a really cool place for this scene to live i agree it's a it's has a lot of surrealist um elements to it where it's just it's hard to tell exactly what's real and um it's uh, i really just the way the branches She's running through these branches, and they're, like, clawing at her, but you can't tell if it's just the branches that she's running through or if they're groping at her with fingers and everything. It's a, It really is an astounding uh, animated sequence. Um, and, you know, it's it's so terrifying. Uh, I When I watched this as a kid in the movie theater, like, it gave me nightmares afterwards. It is It was terrifying, um, and... She has this scream that starts at like when he when the hunter when the huntsman mm-hmm. comes up behind her and it's a blood curdling scream and I just don't remember having that kind of like terror in other animated films as I was growing up. No, it's really impactful and it was impactful enough on me that it is a scene that I like if I'm in the woods and I get stuck by a tree it is something that I think about. I'm like, oh, it's it's a tree claw, <laughs> like in Snow White. <laughs> oh, that's great, yeah. And the w- the other reason I wanted to talk about this scene in particular is the it's really famous, and I think a lot of people now know that in the early 90s late 80s early 90s disney studios codified christopher vogler at disney studios codified a 12-step uh consolidation 
of the hero's journey that Disney and Pixar both use now for their movies, and it is um, something that they believe, and I tend to agree with them, gives a movie a shape that is familiar and will make it feel correct to the viewers. And when I was watching this, for about the first half of the movie, this was something that Disney obviously hadn't figured out yet, but the first half of the movie really adheres to that structure that they're going to come up with in about half a century later. And then, as we'll get into later, it all just falls apart for the for the second half of the movie. <laughs> it really um, does, yeah. But the, the first half of this movie just zings along super fast and it at least for me i don't know how it felt for you it, it yeah it's it really a, feels exciting and i'm in it and and it it sets up the stakes you know one of the things that i remember from watching this movie early on is that um it felt like it got into the story like it doesn't have much exposition um, and it's probably just because I, at the time that I watched it, I couldn't read those words that came up in the storybook fast enough to know what was going on. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it, it, but then the structure of the story, it really does have this mythic structure all the way up until, uh, Snow White gets to the, the house of the dwarves, essentially, um, where it starts to kind of, uh, get a little bit more convoluted or I don't even know if convoluted it just starts the structure then the plot falls apart at that point uh, but it really Ooh, does I, do well at the beginning let, uh, let's jump out so that was the second scene I wanted to talk about is her at the house because I actually think it falls apart later than that I think it falls apart right after her scene where she's cleaning the house um, so like so, right when she goes to bed Yes, right when she yeah. goes to bed. Because what I think... what One of the things that's really important in Vogler's hero's journey structure is that after you cross the threshold and you enter the meat of your movie, then the hero or the protagonist is supposed to go through three trials and that's three lessons that they learn three things where they make a decision and take decisive action and i think in this scene is the last time you really get to see snow white do that because she i think the idea is the animals act as her mentor and then they take her to the cottage and then when I was watching it this time, I was like, oh, look at how good they did. She makes this decision. She's like, I am going to clean this house. And that is her first step and her first trial. And unfortunately, in the structure of the movie, it's also going to be her last one. Um, but it's something she does. She says, you know, if they're going to let me stay here, then I am going to clean their house for them. Which... Uh, yeah, that feels a little, a little, uh, all women little, are good for is cooking and cleaning, uh, <laughs> in a it, way it that's definitely, a little squeaky. It, it, it's, and uh, as I was researching for, uh, this episode, um, so much of the commentary about Snow White, uh, in the scholarly record is mm. about the way that Snow White, um, essentially is do you, she, sorry do you mean snow white the movie or snow white the story 
Um, Snow White the film, yes, specifically okay. the film, um, and comparing with Disney films throughout history, um, and the development of the female protagonist in Disney films. Um, and so there's a lot of criticism of the way that uh, Snow White, the character in the film, is essentially stripped of her agency in so many different ways um, by the filmmakers originally in this part where um, they she essentially stops being a protagonist that's making her own decisions is right when she gets into uh, the bed uh, essentially she's she uh, is almost scenery from that point forward if in fact she reaches a point where she literally is scenery scenery and she's sitting in a glass coffin uh, while everyone acts around her um, and so and then additionally she loses her agency because it's taken away by uh, the characters, the witch, and um, and even the prince who comes up and kisses her while she's asleep. Um, that you know, the, she didn't ask for any of those things. Um, so there's a lot of criticism about the film. Uh, the original story is not like a lot better, but it, she does have a little bit more agency in the original story, sl- slightly more. She does some uh, things that she tries to like escape the witch and try to avoid her plans to poison her until she finally gets caught uh and those things basically don't exist in the film yeah i i hadn't thought because i wasn't prepared for this change to happen i hadn't thought about when i was watching it that basically she goes to sleep in that bed and then it's like she goes to sleep in the movie and she yeah she just kind of won't wake up again unfortunately it's almost um, like the dwarves take over as the protagonists at that point. Yeah. So. And, well, so I do want to quickly, I, we're going to talk about the dwarves in a minute, but I do want to talk about how the, I had mentioned at the beginning that the bones of the structure of musicals to be was around here. And Whistle While You Work, the this musical number that happens as they are cleaning the house is really like a musical production number and it is choreographed Mm -hmm. as such and the it really had a lot of the same feeling that that initial toy that initial toy story sequence that we talked about had yes where there were all of these cute and clever little things they had the squirrels using their tails to clean the thing, clean the dishes. The all of these little gags that they had figured out to fit into this production number, yes. and it was yeah. Is, uh, isn't it? Is it the squirrels or the mice that when it, it sneezes and goes into the into the tankard? Um, I don't know. That's the that's the one that always sticks in my mind. The I think it's a squirrel sneezes and then goes flies back into the tankard and it closes. And I don't know. I just I always remember that scene. Yeah, this so. this is where you see their history, their experience animating animals to music, and it's yes, re- really really joyful. It is. It is, and it's a great song to be honest. Um, it is a great song. So even though it is, you know, essentially uh, functioning as a uh, reinforcement of gender norms at the time period, even gender norms that at the time period were uh, were 
appeared a little bit outdated, to be quite honest. Um, the contemporary record is critical of uh, of Snow White and Walt Disney for um, treating the female characters um, in a in an outdated way. So that really stands out uh, from the time period, if that makes sense. Yeah, 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 it does. So. Why don't we move on to our the next scene that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, so this is um, the the this is essentially after the transition of who the protagonists are. It's after the high ho sequence where we see the dwarves and they're mining and they come back to the house, um, and it's dark in the house, and they go walking up the stairs with a candle and then find Snow White uh, in the bed. And they walk over with this candle and are trying to figure out what's going on here. And this scene stood out to me because I think that this scene is one of the best animated scenes that I have seen in any film ever. Um, as, as far as the animation goes. And I think that it is like it is a more astounding feat of animation than a lot of modern animated films are able to achieve. And it does this... It, What's fascinating about it, as I was watching the film, is they have, particularly Dopey is going up, and the way that he moves is this very kind of jerky movement. Um, he has a hard time holding the candle still. He's shivering from fright, and then he kind of moves in this exaggerated fashion, and he's walking up these stairs. And so the candle is moving just over and over and over again all around the stairs that he's trying to hold in front of him. But then the shadow that he is casting is uh, that is behind him on the wall. I feel like in a modern animated thing, you'd keep that shadow kind of static. Um, and it would just be a shadow that's on the wall. But this shadow moves with every shift of the candle. Um, and it moves in an incredibly realistic way with everything that that uh, Dopey does. And then they come in, and these dwarves come up behind him. And the shadow, based on where the movement of this candle is placed, each dwarf's shadow moves differently relative to their position to the candle. Um, and then once they get up into the bedroom, Snow White there laying on the bed, the shadows are cast on the wall, and it's what creates this terrifying image that the dwarves are afraid of. Um, and I just... It is amazing to me that they were able to to put that much detail in the shadows of this scene in the cell animation that they are doing. Uh, I just it's just remarkable to me. It it is clear that they I didn't notice these shadows the same way that you did, um, but I did notice the shadows when they're on the way home from. Uh, from their working in the mines when they're singing hi-ho and it has that amazing shot of little dwarves and then their shadows getting big as they're going across the rock so it yes. is it, it is clear that they uh, <laughs> they cared about the dwarf shadows a lot <laughs> they, they cared a lot about shadows um, maybe it should have been Snow White and the Seven Dwarf Shadows <laughs> possibly yeah It's a, and I feel like at, at this point um, you don't see animation that puts detail 
into that as much. You know, it's it's a little bit different nowadays where you'll have, you know, your 3D computer animation. They're going to build a model and then they're going to build a system that has the shadows that, you know, uh, will take into account the model that they're building. And so there will be realistic shadows because of the model that they're building. This was all, they had to hand draw, draw it on, on uh, you know, painted cells of of animated uh, uh, animated plaques that they had to like move around adjust and then essentially take pictures of with film it's just i it is hard to imagine how much work went into these details that are in the background of this film it uh, and then they had to do it for an entire movie yeah exactly yeah it's just remarkable. It's amazing. So, the I kept finding, I kept feeling like I was hitting moments where I was thinking, especially in this scene where the so-called camera is moving up the stairs, mm-hmm. and I kept having to recalibrate my brain to remember. Oh no, the camera's not moving up the stairs. They have to redraw this each time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, they do do, you know, where the way that the cell animation works is they're going to have, like, a background that's like a, 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 that's like a painting for for the scenery. And then they're going to have um, certain things that are in the foreground that are essentially mm-hmm. on, like, uh, clear plastic transparent sheet, sheets that has the drawing, and they can move them kind of across. <sighs> um, that doesn't work for necessarily the characters because they have to be doing more uh, kinds of animation, but it works for things that are in the foreground, like trees or whatever it may, might be. They can just move the cell across the page. Oh, so. so like the staircase, they aren't having to redraw that each time. Um, not necessarily. It, it depends because the way that that camera goes up um, moves in a way as if a camera was going up the stage. Mm-hmm. And so the the staircase kind of rotates a little bit as it's going. And that you wouldn't be able to just put on a, a cell and then move two-dimensionally across the uh, across the page. Um, but there, there are parts of it that, uh, that they don't have to redraw each time. Got it. That makes... I've learned something today. Yeah, it's amazing. So, um, do you want to say anything else about the this scene? Um, that's all I've got for that scene. It's a, it's, uh, I just, it's such an incredible animated scene, and I can see why when people watched it, they're completely blown away. Because I was blown away as someone who's watched hundreds of animated films. Uh, it still stood out to me in comparison to those. Yeah. All right. What's your What's your next scene? So the next scene, I was having a hard time picking a particular scene. Uh, I was looking at this scene where the dwarves, um, Snow White talks to the dwarves and tells them that they're going to have to wash up before they eat. And then they go out and they wash up and they do a little musical number and all of those things. Um, Mm -hmm. But what stood out to me about this scene is, and several of the scenes that are all connected here, is that they deliberately take each of these situations that happen and show how each of these individual dwarves respond to those situations mm-hmm. um which was you know there's seven of them uh and i feel like if you were making a, <laughs> a a film nowadays you'd say listen that is too much time to spend with each of these individual dwarves everybody's going to get like one or two things that show their character and then we're going to have like two dwarves that are the main character dwarves that get more scenes but they really take their time for each of these dwarves to express their personality um, to essentially everything that happens uh, after Snow White shows up. 
Yeah, one of the things that I learned when I was reading up on this is that Walt Disney thought that the crux of the film was the gags for the dwarves. And so this was something that they, that was their focus. The job was like, come up with 30 gags for the dwarves. And everyone had to come up with 30 gags. And I think they auditioned a bunch of different different dwarf names before they uh, landed on the the final seven who are in the film. And I would say this fixation on the the dwarf gags really really shows through because it is the movie feels like it becomes yeah the second half of the movie feels a lot more like these like the silly symphony cartoons and it feels really Mm -hmm. gag heavy um especially with all of these dwarves um and it loses a lot of the pathos up until um up until the witch shows up at the house and um and snow white eats the the apple and all those things um so, yeah, it's 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 fascinating the way that this is that they put this together, um, and it's not something that you would see in a modern in a modern animated film. It just would not be made like this. No, I I I like this scene. I I don't. <laughs> I thought it was very funny that they made a big deal of Dopey swallowing the soap bar. And then they showed Dopey uh, having ingested a soap bar, but there was no time where Dopey uningested the soap bar. So, <laughs> as far as we know, he's he's still got that guy swimming around in his gut. What can you do? You know, eventually, I assume eventually you dissolve it, and but I just cannot imagine the indigestion that you'd have for for so long with that soap just sitting there in your stomach. Uh, yeah. Cannot be healthy. Yeah, maybe maybe soap is uh, probiotics for dwarves. Maybe <laughs> That's it's just yeah, possibly the, the gut possibly. bacteria. Uh, it, very possible. Uh, I do like the personality that they give all of the dwarves, and that's the one benefit that you have from taking the time for each of them to respond to each of these things in their own way. Their personality really does come through. No, and I I understand why you said you were kind of having trouble picking which of the dwarf scenes you wanted to talk about. Because if you look at the second half of this movie, I think any one of these scenes shown individually is really fantastic. Like, I'm thinking about this scene, and I'm like, oh, it's so fun. He he scrubs, uh, what's the mean one? Grumpy's butt. That's so funny. Yeah, exactly. like, it, it's I, any of these scenes individually are fun it's just because we've lost who our protagonist is the it feels like we don't really have any forward momentum in the movie because uh well we don't (laughs) exactly exactly all right let's uh let's move on to our uh talking about our our overall themes for this movie sounds good so what do you what do you got for us so uh, we've talked about this all, a lot, but uh, Snow White really was groundbreaking as far as the animation that was made. Um, and not just that it was the first animated movie, but that the animation holds up. Um, I really encourage people, that if, if you're listening, go and watch this film just to see how good the animation is compared to 
modern animated films. It just it it really is incredible. It is a remarkable feat of of just visual art. Uh, the way that they put this film together. Yeah, and then the we've talked about it a lot, uh, Snow White's lack of agency here. But the thing that I really wish, I wish they had done is, I wish that the they could have just had the animals fly to find the prince, and they could have had. It would make sense. Had, yeah, they could have <laughs> had Snow White you know, say something to them. There's so many animals that could have run to help. There was, you know, she has hundreds of different kinds of animals that are helping her out. One of them could have raced to find the prince. Or a dozen of them. I don't know, something. Yeah, we're just gonna wait. Wait a year for... (laughs) (laughs) For the prince to show up. So the other thing that that I want to talk about with the the way that it's looking at gender in this film is Mm -hmm. obviously it's got some serious problems with the way that it represents, uh, with the way that it represents Snow White, the witch as well, and the way that it presents her um, and her relationship with, with gender, all of these things. And it presents this kind of dichotomy of like, this is the good feminine figure and this is the bad one. And the good one is, uh, you know, submissive and, um, you know, does domestic. the cleaning yeah. and is just, yeah, just is uh, domestic. And then the bad one is, you know, aggressive and, like, uh, makes decisions for herself and, you know, is running the country. Um, so these are all serious problems. Um, but what did stand out to me is um, that the way that it represents the masculinities of the dwarves... Um, I think was actually uh, does it has a little bit of redeemable qualities in in this and each of these dwarves has their own relationships with masculinity and this is like a big part of the film as well it's you know you have grumpy specifically uh, calls out a few times uh, you know like that's women's work or uh, you know they refer to them as men and men we need to do these this work or these jobs or um, all these kinds of things they're doing these choices deliberately um, but each of these dwarves has their own relationship with masculinity and the way that it's presented in the film. Um, and some of them are uh, are really departing with these kinds of ideas that we've built up of, of toxic ma- masculinity that kind of is represented in Grumpy. Um, but, like, you have Bashful or uh, Dopey or even Happy or Doc that just express their masculinity in ways that um, that don't fit in with our typical ideals or archetypes of masculine characters no i was particularly struck um by doc that he is the ostensible leader of the group and there's the very brief snippet where he he's the one who's inspecting the gems and deciding which ones are good and which ones are not um but then there's also the part of his character where he is not able to speak in front of groups very well. Mm-hmm. He keeps mixing his words up and he keeps saying things that he doesn't mean to say. And I thought that was a really interesting structure that they had set up, that he was the unchallenged leader of them, even though he would not 
<laughs> he, he probably wouldn't win an election if you had to get four dwarf votes and give speeches and stuff, you know? He had a very uh, clear speech disorder of some kind, and, you know, it's fascinating. And there there are some, you know, ableism pr- problems in the way that Dopey is presented, for example. Sure. Yeah. Um, but, but it is fascinating that... Um, that that they explore this in ways that I w- I was not expecting as I sat down to to watch it. Yeah, I guess some amount of it is sort of accidental in that it was mm-hmm. that it was gag first, and so once yes. they had the names, then then the gag served it. But hey, we get to watch what we get to watch, and <laughs> we don't know how or why. In a lot of cases, they they decided to do what they decided to do it's true it's true and uh i do think in the end um it, it, you're 100 percent right a lot of this is just as soon as you give them certain kinds of character traits then they're not going to act in a certain kind of masculine way but i do think there's this this hint of uh with grumpy representing kind of this um this uh classic idea of masculinity that is broken down over the course of the film um to where even even at the end like Grumpy is the one that is so broken up over Snow White dying. He's the one that is there just completely in tears and sobbing and like, um, and is, you know, he's the one that's kind of behind the, the idea that they're there putting everything on hold and just staying by her graveside and all of those things. And the way that his emotions and sentimentality are highlighted in the second part of the movie, even though he is the grumpy, kind of classically masculine character, I think was an interesting deconstruction of these things, even if it comes, again, at the expense of, uh, you know, all of Snow White's agency, essentially. Yeah, what's a little agency if we're going to show a tough guy being sad, right? Being a little bit sad, yeah, exactly. So... Do do you have anything else you want to say about the movie before we move into wrapping up here? That is all that I've got. You know, it's a. I do think people should go and watch it. Um, it's a. It's a film. There's some things that don't hold up so good, and some things that you know really stand out even now. Um, it's worth a watch. You know, it's worth a watch. Go and stream it. Yeah. Oh, the last thing I did want to say, I meant to say this when we were talking about um, Snow White's lack of lack of agency here. This is our it's our first opportunity, but it's also the first example we have of Snow uh, of Snow White of Disney killing their villain off by happenstance or yes, accident. yes, um, yes, and this is something that I believe was intentional. They didn't want to show their good guys killing people. And so yeah. if the the evil queen is vanquished because uh, she got She runs up on the hill. Yeah, runs yeah. up on a hill, lightning strikes, and she falls. And, you know, you got to be careful when you're standing on hilltops in a thunderstorm, I suppose. Hey, it's the Disney, the Disney karma. It is. If, if, if you're an evil, an evil witch, then you'll probably you will fall to your, death. to your death. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, it's great. <laughs> uh, right. yeah. So I think that is it for Snow White. Let's go ahead and wrap this 
puppy up. If you have any feedback you would like to give us, we are always happy to hear that. You can find me on Twitter, and I am Zvazda, Z-V-A-Z-D-A. And you can find Matt at... Uh, O-R-A-M-W, O-R-A-Y-M-W. Yeah, and if you want to be prepping for next week, then... We are going to be watching The Princess Bride from 1987, the year I was born. I'm excited about this one. It's going to be, uh, it's, we have a lot to say, a lot, it's going to be an experience watching The Princess Bride. Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be fun. All right, I have a, a closing question for you, Matthew. Go for it. If you had a magic mirror... What question would you ask the magic mirror every morning? What question would I ask the magic mirror every morning? Oh. I would... Uh, so this is going to be... This is my real answer. Um, and it's a, it's it's going to seem a little bit sentimental. But the, I would ask every morning, what person can I help today? Um, or what person needs my help today? Uh, I just really do try to. I, I my job is as a public servant. I I really try to do this. That's what I would go for. Um, the other thing, though, that if I wasn't asking that, I would ask it specifically, like, uh, show me the back of my head, so that I could see, you know, the back of my head more clearly. Uh, I don't know if I can let this podcast go out now because my answer is I would ask that magic mirror what the percentage chance whatever seattle sports team was playing at the time had of winning the championship that that's a good one you can do a lot with that i would want to know the exact percentage i don't trust these models made by humans with no magic i want to know the exact percentage as of that morning i like that answer that's a good answer i love it uh, okay, so I've got a question back for you. Um, okay. it, um, if an evil queen slash mm-hmm. witch were mm-hmm. trying to poison you and kill you, what is the food or drink that would get you? You just wouldn't be able to turn it down. They come around. You know, that apple was so juicy and red and delicious looking. Mm-hmm. Snow White just mm-hmm. couldn't turn it down. What's the thing for you that you just... You know you're not supposed to, but you'd totally go for it, and off you go in a glass coffin for the for until a prince comes by to kiss you awake. Uh, a carnitas taco. There's no way I would be able to avoid that. Mm. If it if it had some nice nice spices and a really good salsa on top. Oh, that does yeah. sound amazing. Yeah, I, I'd be I'd be gone until Mary found me. That, that is that is a good one. That is a good one. Uh, mine would be lemon bars. Um, I just, I cannot turn down lemon bars. Uh, whenever I have, I, uh, lemon bars is a thing that I always ask for, like when it's my birthday and things like that. Um, and you know, I can eat an entire, uh, an entire tray of lemon bars in one sitting all by myself. And, uh, it's not, it's probably poisoned me almost as much as that poison apple would, but I do it anyway. All right. Well, now we have put out into the world if people want to poison us uh they'll <laughs> the cops what were we thinking through, oh no yes they can go through our download log and uh get 13 suspects i suppose <laughs> that uh, that's excellent wonderful
All right. Well, thanks for hanging, Matt, and we'll chat next week. Sounds good. See you next week. Bye.